All right, so we're going through the heresies. Uh, heresies round one still. This is the second century, and we're getting ready to kind of move into the third century. What we're going to look at today is actually the morning. Um, what we'll look at today is actually a, um, a heresy that kind of got started in the second, but was also merged into the third century, so it was really influential in both. Welcome, what's your name? Micah. Micah? Yeah. Well, sorry. That's fine. Okay, so we'll probably have a chance to meet everybody here soon. I'm Michael. Uh, I'm teaching them in Sunday school today. Um, so we're learning uh, church history. That's the subject that we're on right now. Um, so what we've been through so far is we've talked about really their heresies, but in, in a particular way, they're kind of like cults. They're little spin-offs. Um, a lot of the heresies we've dealt with so far have really been kind of started in the church and maybe went out of the church. Today it's going to get a little bit different. So just to kind of begin, um, kind of give you an idea of where things are taking place. In the region of Phrygia, so if you look up here on the map, um, you're probably fairly familiar with this part of um, the world, Asia Minor, uh, part where Paul did a lot of his uh, missionary work, and of course there were a lot of churches all throughout that area beginning of the first century and the second century is filled with churches. So in the area of Phrygia, which is kind of the central part of that um, Asia Minor, there is a small town called Pathusa. And in what was probably about the 150s AD or so, a Christian native of that town, Pathusa, began to prophesy in a new and strange manner. And it was, uh, at least it was, it was a new and strange manner for the church. And that man's name was Montanus, and within a short time after he began prophesying, he had a popular and powerful movement uh, that, that kind of followed him, took off. And Montanus had followers all over Asia Minor. Eventually, his, his following expanded to the rest of the Christian world, into uh, Europe, into uh, northern Africa, and so on. And then very early on, Montanus also took on a few disciples. He took on uh, a couple female disciples, one was named Maximilla, the other was named Priscilla. And these two women also, uh, I think presumably they may have been among the first, but they also prophesied like uh, Montanus did, in the same manner and way that he did. So they kind of joined with them, and they became this trio. Uh, a trio of Montanus, Maximilla, Priscilla, who were like the leaders and celebrities of what they were calling the new prophecy. That was their term for it. So this movement of the second and third centuries is uh, today, and then they call it the new the new prophecy. Today, uh, we mostly just remember it as Montanism after uh, Montanism, of course. I think as we get into a subject like Montanism, it's going to be a complex and even a little bit delicate of a subject uh, for us to deal with. It's um, uh, it's not like the heresies of Gnosticism and, and Marcionism. Those heresies were a little bit more straightforward. They, uh, uh, they kind of ran so far afield of Orthodox Christianity that they're fairly easy to identify and reject. So, and, and perhaps for that reason, too, those, it seems that those heresies, while they did do a lot of damage, uh, and they did lead astray many Christians who were maybe ill-trained, didn't know the, the word very well, they didn't seem to divide the church uh, quite in the same way that Montanism did. 
Uh, whole churches were caught up in into Montanism. Uh, they were led astray by the new prophecy. Bishops, elders, theologians all kind of bought into it. And it took a longer period of time for the church to kind of form a united position against the Montanist era. So what makes uh, Montanism a complex subject? Well, quite simply, uh, it's the fact that it was an error not as openly anti-Christ or anti-God as some of the other cults of that period. It was more subtle. Um, it also wasn't like the other cults immediate, immediately separating from the church. As I said, it, it took time for them to kind of recognize it for what it was. Also, the Montanist era, although it was very dangerous, might not have been, uh, I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week, but it might not have been so fatal of, a, of an error, of a heresy, as to entirely exclude people from faith. Um, I believe there may well have been uh, some, maybe even many true believing saints who were deceived and caught up into the uh, Montanist movement. It's another thing that makes Montanism a complex subject for, for us. Montanism was one of the earliest big schisms for the church. Of course, there were many schisms across, uh, across history, but this was one of the early ones. And whenever you have a schism, it tends to peel away at the layers of other issues in the church. So other things start to crop up. And some of those issues may or may not be directly related to the, the schismatic error itself, but they come up. And because of that, they're actually quite valuable and instructive for us. We, I think we can learn a whole lot from them. So today, what I want to do is I want to give you a summary of Montanism, what it was, why it was erroneous. But in future lessons, we're going to actually revisit Montanism. We're going to come kind of full circle and, and kind of deal with it again. Uh, because I found that it's, it's very useful to help us ponder some of the other church issues that were uh, uh, that really it exposed that were going on in the church at that time. Finally, what makes Montanism a delicate subject for us? It's complex, it's also delicate. What makes it delicate um, is this fact, and that is it's impossible to talk about a controversy like Montanism without dredging up some of the doctrinal controversy of our own time. Um, and this is controversy that isn't between so much between Christians and non-Christians, but between Christians and Christians. Controversy in the church. In short, you could say it's, it's going to be difficult for us to, and maybe even awkward for us to talk around some of the elephants in the room when we're dealing with Montanism. Uh, Christianity today, of course, has, uh, we, in it we have our own differences in doctrine, and those differences will affect, um, even dictate how we handle and understand the Montanists, who they were, and what we make of them. And I know, uh, for us here, I know, I know many of you well, and I'm aware that with many of you, maybe even most of you, uh, you're persuaded that the gift of prophecy, along with some other gifts, ceased upon the death of the apostles, or possibly the completion of the New Testament canon. Uh, now, I know you guys, that some of you also know me very well, and you, you may be aware, a few of you, that I don't entirely agree with that position. Uh, the whys and the wherefores of that, and we're not going to get into today or really ever in this class, but it's something that I need to, uh, it's an important thing to, for me to make note for you, so you can kind of understand uh, how I'm dealing with it today. I actually kind of debated my, with myself whether I should even bring that issue up, but um, I decided it, was, it really is pretty important, because for one thing, 
Uh, that question and that issue will probably come up as a question and answer anyways, and at that point, probably it would be all the more awkward. So, um, and then for another thing, the way that I'm going to deal with Montanism today may take you, uh, may cause confusion if you're not aware of that. It may take you a little bit by surprise. Now, I, I will, I intend to deal with Montanism biblically, um, and uh, I think you'll agree with me in the way that I do it, but it might not be the, exactly the way you expect it to. And so I just want to get that out there um, to be given it so, uh, from the get-go so you guys know what's going on here. So let's go ahead and move into it. Before we move into it, any uh, questions before we get started here? Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about the new prophecy. What was it? And why was it wrong? What was wrong with the new prophecy of Montanus, Maximilla, and Priscilla? I want to begin by setting aside, um, it's probably most helpful for us to set aside some of the unreliable accusations against Montanus. Uh, one of the realities of this period of church history is that uh, often very little of what the heretics themselves wrote survives. Uh, obviously because the church didn't want to preserve that. Uh, they were against it. And in the case of Montanus, actually, we, we maybe have a little bit more. We've, we've got some pretty significant, significant Montanistic writing that did actually survive. But much of it didn't. Much of it was just lost, destroyed, or just wasn't copied and, and transmitted. Um, and so what we're left with is, is we're left with uh, often more of what the critics of the heretics said than what the heretics themselves said. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those critics aren't, you know, we shouldn't trust them or anything. But it does mean we have to be kind of careful. Uh, careful as far as what we take as, you know, being factual and what we take as um, maybe not so factual. And whenever you have a schism in the church, whenever you have church division, I think it's even more important to do this. Really, this applies to the other heretics as well. Uh, when we hear the church talking about a Marcion, for example, we um, have to be careful what we accept and don't accept about what they say. But it's even more important when you have the church divided and you have one side of the church saying this about the other side of the church, so to speak. So I want to lay aside several, if you read um, either church fathers or if you read things online, you may run into some of these accusations. And I think, I won't get into all the details as to why, but I think these ones here are ones that I want to set aside as being at best unreliable and maybe even downright fictitious. So, number one, uh, that they committed infant sacrifice. There's a report of that. It's not, it's pretty spurious. Um, I don't think there's a lot of good, um, evidence that they really did that. But there was a report that in Papuza, the Montanists actually performed this weird ritual which effectively involved uh, sacrificing a baby. I don't think it's, I think it's more than probably entirely fictitious. And even later, church fathers kind of brought that up and said, yeah, we don't think so. We think that one was pretty far-fetched. So set that one aside. I don't think they did that. Another unreliable accusation is that the Montanists were modalists in their theology. Real quickly, modalism is the, it's a misunderstanding of the Trinity. It's a heresy. It's the idea that God is one person, but he uh, is called Father or Son or Holy Spirit, depending on how he is acting. So, uh, in what mode he is acting. So, for example, if he's in heaven, he's called the Father. If he's incarnate on earth, he's called the Son. 
If he's indwelling a Christian, he's called the Holy Spirit. That's modalism, and it's wrong. It's uh, it's false. Um, the Trinity is three distinct distinct persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and the, the Montanists were accused of this. It's pretty unreliable. Uh, there's some real good reasons to believe that that was not something that they held. Now it is reliable only in this sense, and that is after Montanus. Uh, died, there was a Montanistic leader who kind of led astray a subset of uh, Montanists into that era. But on the whole, the Montanists were actually um, uh, pretty sound in that, in that part of the theology. Other unreliable accusations is that the Montanist leaders like Maximilla and Priscilla lived corrupt lifestyles. Um, they claimed superiority to the apostles. They, uh, they claimed uh, people said that Montanus claimed to be the paraclete himself. All of those are pretty unreliable. We just don't have a lot of good, uh, reliable, and corroborated reports about that. So I'm going to kind of set those accusations aside. There's other stuff that we want to deal with. Um, really, in the most essential doctrines of the faith, especially the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of God, the best evidence suggests that the Montanists were not heretics. We bumped into a guy named Hippolytus before in this class, and uh, he's another guy who factors in this. He was really anti-heretic. He wrote some good writings against the heretics, and he wrote against the Montanists. This is what he said about them. He said, the Montanists acknowledge God to be the father of the universe and creator of all things, similarly with the church, and receive as many things as the gospel testifies concerning Christ. They introduce, however, novelty. So that's a pretty good you know, testimony from an opponent of the Montanists that basically they're orthodox in a lot of things, but there are some things that they're getting uh, that they're getting pretty off track on. And then interestingly, in that context, Apostles was actually contrasting the Montanists with some of the other guys like the Gnostics and Marcion. Alright, so uh, Hippolytus' concern, and many other church fathers' concern with Montanists, was uh, the, the weird novelties that they were introducing. So what were those? And that's why I'm going to move on to the reliable accusations. So the reliable accusations really can kind of fall into two different places for, for us. The first one, when it comes to the, the Montanist prophecy, is one method, and then the other one's going to be the content of what they prophesied. So let's deal with me method first. Montanus, Maximilla, and Priscilla practiced what was called ecstatic prophecy. They prophesied while in ecstasy, as they called it, and as did their followers after them. Eusebius, um, who we've uh, met before, quotes one of the early opponents of Montanism, and that opponent had this criticism. He said this, quote, The pseudo-prophet speaks in ecstasy without shame or fear. He begins with intentional ignorance, but ends in unintentional madness. They cannot show that any prophet, either in the Old or New Testament, was inspired in this way, unquote. He goes on in another place, he says this, he says, Montanus, the man Montanus, quote, fell into a trance. He began raving, chattering, and speaking nonsense, prophesying contrary to church tradition and custom. Montanism was rightly called the new prophecy because the way and manner in which this prophecy was spoken was unlike anything that the church had known or accepted before. 
um, in, in ecstatic prophecy, what happens is the so-called prophet somehow loses control over his or her senses. Um, he enters, he or she enters an altered state of mind and becomes, as it were, possessed of a spirit. Um, and the Montanists claim it was the Holy Spirit that possessed them. Uh, then apparently this spirit, so to speak, would speak in the first person using the prophet's mouth. And he'd say weird things like, I am the paraclete and blah, blah, blah. And so on. They thought that was the prophecy. Now, a lot of Christians in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, when they kind of encountered and saw this phenomenon occurring in a, in a prophet while they were prophesying in ecstasy, um, they became very excited. Uh, people wanted guidance, and it was exciting to think that God himself was speaking directly through a prophet in this manner. Um, other Christians, on the other hand, were uh, not so amused. Uh, quite correctly, a lot of them, when they saw this manner of prophecy, to them it looked more like demon possession than actually the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, they had, they had good reason to think that. If you read the reports about Montanism and, and this whole ecstatic prophecy, it really sounds almost exactly the same as the pagan Greek oracles. Um, if you're familiar with, with Greeks, the Greek, a Greek oracle was basically a woman. And this was in paganism and in the Greek idolatry, they did this practice. A Greek oracle was a woman who would fall into a trance and say cryptic, enigmatic things. She would kind of be in an altered state of mind. And uh, quite often these oracles would even uh, accurately predict future events. Sometimes they did not, but oftentimes they did. And so the pagan, pagan Greeks would come from miles around to consult an oracle and receive guidance, as they thought. It was an idolatrous, occultic practice. And so when some Christians saw the Montanists and what they were doing, they said, that doesn't look right. Uh, it looked to them like you know, what, the, what the Greek oracles did. Um, there are reports uh, that in both cases, both the cases of Maximilla and Priscilla, that while they were prophesying, there were some church leaders who wanted to exorcise those women. They wanted to cast out demons. However, because of the division, you had a lot of people kind of standing up and getting in the way, and there was just this controversy, this conflict that emerged. So the, the method, this was a, this is the method that is reported to us of how the, um, uh, Montanists actually uh, did their prophecy. Context next. Any questions you have at this point? When you say paraclete, I've heard that word before, but I can't think of what it means. Paraclete is what um, uh, Christ calls the Holy Spirit in the book of John. Okay. So Toward the end of 14. is the Holy Spirit. Yes. It's, a, it's John's word, especially for the Holy Spirit. Question. All right, content. What? So here they are. They're having this weird uh, method of prophecy. It's not something the church has really seen or done before. What did they actually say? Uh, what was this personality, if you will, that spoke through Montanus, spoke through Maximilian Priscilla? What was it claiming? Well, in addition to claiming to be the Paraclete. It gave some predictions and some instructions. Uh, so first of all, one prediction. It said that Papuza, again up here in Phrygia, that's the hometown of Montanus, it said that Papuza was the new Jerusalem. 
Um, Montanism was an overtly apocalyptic type of cult. Um, they were strong. You guys remember Kiliasts, pre-millennials, uh, believed in the thousand-year reign on Earth. However, they claimed that Papuza would be where Christ would reign in his millennial kingdom, and also that it would be the site of the New Jerusalem. Um, one of the prophetesses also claimed that uh, this was Christ coming and setting up his kingdom in Papuza was imminent, and that at the end, or the end was going to come very shortly after she died. That was the first thing. The second thing that they, uh, that this uh, prophecy instructed, it, it forbade widows to remarry. So the Montanists considered it actual adultery for a man or a woman to marry a second time after their first spouse had died. So if you, you're married and then uh, your spouse dies before you do, you cannot remarry, according to the Montanists. Uh, they were very, very strict about this. They were also uh, strict about another thing. They forbade believers to flee persecution. So if you know uh, they start rounding up Christians in whatever city you're in, and, and you can see the writing on the wall, you get up and get out of town, you're not supposed to do that according to the Romans. Third thing, the third major content that we know that they actually you know, taught in their prophecies, they commanded various fasts and religious festivals. The Montanists were, were very strict about observing these too. Um, they were highly ascetic and, and really even legalistic in, in their attitude towards food. Uh, whereas most of the, the rest of the church, they had an attitude toward fasting where it was a matter of personal choice most of the time. Uh, believers could kind of just decide on their own when and, and what time and how to fast. But the Montanists actually uh, prescribed fasts, and if you were a Montanist, you were supposed to keep them. Everybody had it and was expected to obey. Now this is a point I would ask you to maybe make a mental bookmark of because we are going to revisit this uh, subject especially, this idea of fasting and, and keeping uh, festivals in a future lesson. Because uh, this is one of those things that I mentioned before where it, it begins to overlap into some other underlying issues in, in that period of church history. I'll go ahead and move on. So that's the method and that's the content uh, of these prophecies. Now here's the question. How do we recognize false prophecy when we see it? One of the church fathers that I just quoted above, he, he said that the Montanists prophesied contrary to what was church tradition and custom from the beginning. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but I will say this. It's, that can be either a strong or a weak argument depending on what he actually meant. Um, if, for example, he meant the tradition of apostolic doctrine, it is a strong argument. Um, however, if he meant historical church practice, it's a little bit of a weak argument. Um, and we're going to, as I said, we'll get into the exact reasons why it's a weak argument in some future lessons when we kind of um, revisit this, this specific uh, uh, content of the Montanist prophecy. But for now, let's go ahead and just talk about the strong argument. Let's use that today. Um, I want to present the argument against Montanism from apostolic doctrine itself. That is, what did the apostles teach? Um, go ahead, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We're looking at verses 38, or sorry, 37 and 38. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. 
The Apostle Paul says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Christ uh, warned us that a lot of false prophets would come and see people. Um, and we can identify those prophets by two things. First of all, of course, uh, Jesus mentioned their fruits. Uh, that's the first way that you want to check on a prophet with the fruits of their ministry, their life. Um, the second thing is their doctrine itself. Uh, through his apostles, Christ gave us one, both a record of his own words and teachings, and, and a whole, as uh, second, a whole doctrinal foundation. And that is what the apostles themselves actually taught. They were his, his uh, spokesmen on earth after he left. So that foundation, of course, of, of apostolic doctrine is the authority by which all other doc all doctrine, all prophecy, etc., is to be judged. There are a number of passages where Christ and the apostles claim this, and I think that this one in 1 first, first Corinthians 14 is um, especially appropriate to our topic today. The passage itself is in the very context of the subject of prophecy. And Paul tells us that if anyone thinks himself a prophet, he has to recognize the authority of Paul's apostolic command. And if anyone rejects Paul's command, that person should not be accepted as a true prophet. That's what uh, verse 38 says. But if anyone does not recognize this, what? What he just said. He is not to be recognized. The, um, he's not to actually be recognized as a true prophet. So the most fundamental test for whether prophecy is either true or false is whether it accords with the apostles' teaching, whether it accords with Scripture. So let's just test the prophecy, the content of, 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 of well, method and content of what Montanus was doing by that rule. So first of all, the, the method. Um, Montanus prophesied in a state of ecstasy, an altered state of mind. What does the Apostle Paul say about that? Stay in the same chapter and just look up at uh, verses, move up a little bit and look at verses 32 and 33. And they say, he says this there, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, what the context is behind that statement is um, the church of Corinth was getting rather chaotic. People, everyone wanted to prophesy at the same time, everybody wanted to speak in tongues at the same time, or whatever it was. And Paul said, no, you have to do it one at a time. You have to take turns, because things should be done in order. And he says this, he says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What he's saying here is, nobody gets to get up and say, oh, you know what, I'm a prophet, and when the Holy Spirit comes over me, I just don't have control. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is just going to speak through me, and I can't, you know, decide, you know, when and, and what time I'm going to prophesy. Paul says that's wrong. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit doesn't possess people in the same way that a demon, for example, would possess people. Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The second thing that Montanus did. Um, Montanus forbade widows to remarry, and even went so far as to claim that it would be adultery for them if they did. And Apostle Paul tells us something entirely different. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 7.39, which I'll just read it um, as we go along here. But. 1 Corinthians, earlier in the same book, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, 
A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband's dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only the Lord. So Paul contradicts Montanus. Third thing, uh, again, in, Mont- in the content of what Montanus prophesied, he commanded strict fasting, um, as well as the keeping of religious festivals. These were things that the apostles never had commanded, but Montanus came along and started to commanded them. In Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul says this. He says, no one is to act as your judge in regards to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. This, of course, gets repeated. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Seventh-day Adventists, not just to pick on them, but uh, they had a prophetess did the same thing. She comes along, says she's a prophet, and um, pretty soon she's commanding dietary restrictions and so on and so forth. Keep the Sabbath, keep Saturday, and so on. So, really, it's very, it's really quite straightforward when we look at what the apostles actually say. The prophetic method and the instructions that we know uh, from, from reliable reports that Montanus, the Montanists propagated were really a blatant contradiction of the plain, really very plain teachings of the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul. The test for true prophecy, of course, is the scripture. I think scripture pretty much is a, well, it's a, it's a solid metric by which to test everything that comes out there. There's a lot all throughout history, not only in one day, a lot in church history that, uh, a lot of examples where we have cult leaders, people coming out, claiming to have some revelation of some form or another, and so often you can immediately reject it when you see it um, contradicting being out of harmony with what the doctrine of the apostles actually teaches. So don't don't be led astray by false prophecy.